Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Binance Podcast. My name is Weijo. I'm the host for this show. In my daytime job, I'm the chief financial officer for Binance. I joined Binance from the traditional financial world, where I served as the chief financial officer for several Chinese and American companies, two of which were listed on Nasdaq and the New York Stock Exchange. Since I've joined Binance, I basically have witnessed a lot more people who are becoming more and more interested in blockchain and cryptocurrency. So, what I want to do with this show is to spend time talking to specialists, entrepreneurs, scholars, influencers, basically leading people from a variety of industries. Hopefully, through these conversations, we can share insights on how blockchain is changing not just these different industries, but also in changing the world. Here's a quick disclaimer. All opinions expressed by our host and our guests on this podcast are merely their own opinions. They do not imply any endorsements or opinions of their companies. You should not take these opinions as specific investment advice, as you will be solely responsible for your own investment. Hi, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to the Binance Podcast again. We have two very special guests today. From the regulatory side of cryptocurrency or digital asset, the first one is、uh, Loretta Joseph, who is a senior advisor to the OECD on blockchain, as well as uh, various uh, government entities around the world. And the second is、uh, Jason, who is the、uh, the very famous crypto congress from Taiwan, who is a、uh, congressman at large, but、uh, has been advancing、uh, a very progressive crypto agenda. Hope you enjoyed the talks. I'm very happy today to introduce Loretta Joseph, who is a veteran in the financial world and、uh, joined the crypto world not so long ago, but、uh, has made a tremendous impact in sort of bringing cryptocurrency and、uh, blockchain to the regulators around the world.、Uh, she is an active advisor to the OECD, to numerous governments around the world, including Western Africa, Australia, Mauritius, India, and then various、uh, European countries as well. Loretta, thanks for joining the show. Thanks, Wei, and I'm glad you called me a veteran, and you just didn't say I was old. <laughs> Anyhow,、um, so do you want to give us a little bit about、um, sort of your personal background? Because I think before we get into sort of the meaty part, the content in terms of what work you've been doing, can you tell us just a little bit about who you are, and then where you're from,、uh, what you've been doing from professionally? Yeah, so so my, so my my name is Loretta Joseph.、Um, I started my life out as a futures trader way back in 1991 when we didn't even have phones or computers, and I traded with my hands in the three-year bond pit. It was a very dis- different life. So I've worked for many、um, international banks as a derivatives trader. I think I've traded most asset classes that there are around the world.、Um, I moved to India. On my own with my daughter in 2004, and set up、um, an Australian derivatives desk for an Australian bank, Macquarie Bank. And I worked, went on to be the managing director of Royal Bank of Scotland in India. Then I jumped the fence and went to be an investment banker, which I thought was the most ridiculous thing that I could ever do. So I came back to Australia in 2012, and I started to look at cryptocurrencies、um, way before it was cool. At the time, one of my very good friends became the regulator of ASIC, the Australian Securities、um, and Investments Commission, and he was also the chair of IOSCO. He was probably the most innovative and forward-thinking regulator that I've ever known. And he said to me in 2014, "This thing that we've been talking about, Roberta, the blockchain—it's going to change the world. You better start looking at it." So I was working for a stock exchange in Australia, just a very small one called the Sydney Stock Exchange.、Um, so I looked at the clearing and settlement and post-trade 
post-trade processes, which had been such a hindrance in my life as a derivatives trader and mm-hmm. trying to match things. And I looked at blockchain and I went, wow, we can actually bring clearing and settlement to zero with a blockchain system. So that was how I got into it. I didn't get into it through Bitcoin. I then consequently um, helped set up something called the Australian Digital Chamber of Commerce. We wrote the self-regulation in Australia for Bitcoin. Um, A number of countries then followed our regulation. And we started working very closely with the Australian government. I then started working very closely with the regulator. We were the first jurisdiction that decided that we'd have a uniform definition for digital assets as opposed to be called virtual virtual currencies or virtual assets. The Australian government um, came out with it with a term across the finance ministry, the regulator and the attorney general, that we'd refer to them as digital assets. And then I started the rest of this history. I went to um, the Economic World Forum two years ago. I met the Premier of Bermuda, David Burt. He said, do you want to come to Bermuda tomorrow and write my legislation on digital assets? I said, no. He said yes, and I said no. I didn't know where Bermuda was. So I jumped on a plane with a guy called Joseph Weinberg, who runs a company called Shift, and we sat down and we wrote the first legislation around digital assets and ICOs in the world in Bermuda last year. <laughs> you didn't get lost in the Bermuda Triangle getting there? <laughs> I didn't get lost and I got out. <laughs> you got out of the Bermuda Triangle as well. No, so that's really, really fascinating because one of the things that, at least from my, my experience at Binance, is that we've been uh, basically engaging with regulators in different jurisdictions. And a lot of the things that, uh, at least what I've done, and, and sort of you and I, like our path have crossed many times, is basically the hard part, I think, is the education part. In your conversations, you basically are having the same conversation over and over again. And what, what are some of the recurring themes then? Because I think it's a double-edged sword, I think, that, that, that a lot of these regulators have. There's the growth hat, where they see the innovation aspect of blockchain technology and the innovation uh, aspects of cryptocurrency. But there's also a lot of FUD with you know money laundering, terrorism financing. There's that aspect of it, that FUD that comes along with it. For you, how do you start the conversation? So it's interesting to me because, I, yeah, I am old, by the way. Um, and having traded every asset classes, you know, it, it's really interesting. I mean, I traded a lot of sort of green bonds back in the 90s and, and, and assets that were very immature. So to me, um, cryptocurrencies is just a digital asset and it's only one form. Um, the most exciting thing I think is now that we can tokenize anything. You know, it's, it, cryptocurrencies is the tokenization of money but now we like the securitization markets that i lived through in the 90s this is just the digital form so everything can be tokenized like a, a you know a kill an hour of energy or a piece of gold that's exciting because it brings um into secondary markets liquidity functions that we've never seen in the world so you you're totally having a revolution now of capital markets difficult one because regulators are generally old um older than me Policy makers are generally old and, and they don't, there's a lot of inertia in the system. You know, regulators have a lot to deal with in the capital markets and, and um, you know, looking after normal securities that they do now, let alone bringing in whole new instruments and whole new asset classes that don't, they know nothing about. So for me, it's an education process with them because I understand having been regulated in 30 jurisdictions, I think, over my career. I understand why regulation is important. It, it, it protects consumers, it protects um, investors. It allows scalability, interoperability, and it allows markets and asset classes to mature. So the, the problem is that a lot of the regulators and a lot of governments get very confused between cryptocurrencies and blockchain. 
and you have to you have to break it down for them and they need to understand there's a difference between the technology and applications of the technology so that's when the first thing for me is educating them um, and, and getting them out of that feeling of inertia. There's a lot of inertia in, in, in bureaucratic organisations. And, and, you know, and I do a lot of work with the OECD, um, you know, uh, a lot of the big, bigger organisations, the IMF governments, and, and there is not a lot of inertia. So it's been a huge education process for me, explaining to them what this is. The, the level of, of scared and frightened looks that I used to get about five years ago from central banks. Um, I also sit as the OMPIP, by the way, which is the Monetary and Financial um, Institution Forum, so that's all the central banks. So over the last 16 months, I've seen an education level between the large economic institutions, the central banks, and the regulators grow, like I, grow at an enormous speed. So they're catching up. Um, they're starting to understand what the technology can do. They can, they're starting to understand that cryptocurrencies is not as scary as they would have thought five years ago. And they're starting to sensibly regulate because I think banning things is just a reaction when you don't understand something. Over-regulation is really bad, but no regulation is, is worse because the likes of Binance and the likes of the other companies in your space where it's very hard if you go to a jurisdiction where your, your regulation is very, very light, you can't scale your business back into the mature world. So you, you have to look at jurisdictions that um, are forward thinking, that, that are not scared of, of taking a little bit of risk because there's risk in everything. Innovation is risk, but um, some of the best ones, I think, are the smaller, nimble ones where they can change legislation and they can, they can collaborate across all the institutions, from whether it be the financial services regulator, the, the, prime, the prime minister's office, um, the financial intelligence unit guys, uh, to the finance ministries, um, to all the stakeholders and in the industry to make sure that we're now writing regulation that suits industry can actually be implemented by the industry and isn't going to put this um, industry back out into the, the dark edges. Then one question I ask is, do you see convergence in regulation then? Because that's something that, that I mentioned, I think, a couple of weeks ago at a conference I was attending. Is basically what we're seeing right now is that some of the more smaller, nimble countries are definitely coming out with um, what I would call more progressive regulations and hope to attract the innovation aspects of it and hope to bring businesses, job growth, investors um, to their respective countries and, and regions. And where some of the larger countries where it's just harder for them to change laws and move into this space are slower. But the advantage, I think, of this industry is that it's quite mobile. Like the talent in this industry are generally borderless and can basically take their talent anywhere. And the money that is moves around in this industry is generally borderless. So, so you basically see competition amongst the different jurisdictions from a regulatory perspective. But you still need some of the more advanced countries and advanced economies to sort of to join the cause, as I like to call and as I don't forget, I started doing this in Australia. Now, so Australia is a really interesting um, use case for me because um, I had a prime minister that had an innovation agenda. Uh, Australia is a very mature market. It's, we punch about, above our weight all the, you know, quite regularly. We are in the G20, um, and it's seen by the rest of the world as being, as being a very, very properly regulated and compliant market. So starting to write some of the laws and the self-regulation we did in Australia was very, very good. Um, it's also one advantage that it has common law system. So the entire Commonwealth of the world, which the British left us as a legacy, means 53 countries around the world have the same law system. 
when you're trying to look at regulation in Europe and in the US, for instance, it's a big jar of spaghetti. You've got different regulators in different states. In Europe, you've got different regulators just across borders. Um, what I've tried to do in the last year and a half is align myself with countries that have very similar law systems. So Bermuda, Mauritius, Antigua, um, Jamaica, Canada, Australia, the UK, um, West Africa, um, parts of India. You know, we all have exactly the same law system. So if we can have a, a, an ability now to have regulation that is harmonised and standardised, I don't think it stifles innovation and I don't think it stifles competition. So I like to look at it now. Um, I, I have this hashtag and I think it's a really good one. Collaboration is the new survival. So if we can bring um, you know, the likes of Malta, who have been very progressive in, in coming out with their, their legislation and the regulations around crypto assets and digital assets. They service Europe. Mauritius is the gateway to India and Africa. And Bermuda is the gateway to North America. So if all of a sudden you can unify these jurisdictions to have the, the same standards and passport companies, you open up the world. So I like to refer to it now as we're not going to see treaties of tax going forward. We're going to see treaties of technology. And I think that benefits the industry, it benefits the regulators, and it gives comfort to the investors. So that's what I see. Um, can, can you, can you actually go into detail a little bit? Because I think I'm going to nerd out here, just go into detail a little bit about some of the laws in Australia. I've been to Australia, you know, you invited me to attend the, the Davos conference in, uh, in Adelaide, and I was pleasantly surprised by the support in general, as well as the knowledge in, in Australia. Yeah, well, so, um, so Australia's a really, we're a small country, it's very much like Canada, um, but unlike Canada, who's got a number of regulators. So, so when the regulator was run by my friend Greg Metcraft, who now is the Director of Finance and um, Enterprise at the OECD, he, he started the regulatory sandbox around innovation. So I looked, um, when I went to build my, my clearing and settlement system for the Sydney Stock Exchange, I went and had a look at the Corporations Act of Australia. Um, it referred specifically to CHESS, which is a software system that is implemented by the Australian Stock Exchange. So I went back to the government and said, we can't have a monopoly of an exchange and it can't be written into law. Now, don't forget, a lot of these legacy um, softwares, yeah, when I was a trader 20 years ago, they were, they were novel. Um, we didn't have technology. We didn't have anything better. So the first thing we did in Australia was said, okay, the law is not technology agnostic. We need to remove that. So, so they did. Um, and then I said, we, you know, we had a situation when I was at the Digital Chamber of Commerce, we went to the Ministry of Finance and they were referring to cryptocurrencies as virtual currencies. And the Attorney General's office were calling them digital assets. And I said, well, you guys can't agree. What are we going to do? So we had to come up with, it with a uniform term. So I think we were the first country in the world that described... Um, a digital asset. And a cryptocurrency is just one application. So then I thought about it and I thought, if unlike the internet, um, where you had, you, had, you had so many different terms, if we could start to passport similar terms. So one of the other things I look at crypto exchanges, in the true sense of a word, do I think you as a crypto exchange are a security exchange? No. I think they're more of a digital asset marketplace. And when you start to talk about exchanges with traditional regulators, they get very worried because securities exchanges have very large capitalizations. Um, you know, they are part of infrastructure, they're public private infrastructure. So mm -hmm. I think some of the terminologies that came out of the early days of blockchain and cryptocurrency, had we have referred to Bitcoin as Zen tokens, 
No central bank would worry about them. But the minute you put coin and ICOs, you do that initial coin offerings, we probably should have called the initial business offerings because <laughs> the confused terms um, get people worried about things that they don't need to worry about. So that's one thing I do is I'm trying to standardise the terms that we use across the world. Um, the FATF, you know, they refer to these as virtual assets. In 2011, they started calling cryptocurrencies virtual currencies. And my argument was they're not virtual because they exist and they're not currency because if you look at some of the laws in Australia to start with, we refer to cryptocurrencies as, as commodities. Uh -huh. So I think that's an interesting point is that you, you, you need to have a uniform and aligned terminology throughout the world because different jurisdictions take things different ways if you do not. So that's what I've tried to do. Australia, I think we did a really good job and I've had um, quite a large success in taking the terminology that we created in Australia and putting into other countries that I deal with, especially the ones that have got common law. And, mm -hmm. you know, if we could federate 53 countries this year, if I can walk into a number of these African states, um, you know, the Caribbean, Australia, Canada, Papua New Guinea, anyone that's got British law, and we can tinker it around the actual legislation of each country because it's a bit different, but have a unified, unified standard set of regulations. It's easier for you as the industry, but I do think the industry also needs to come together this year and create better um, standards that, that are self-regulated so we can move the industry forward because it's moving at a huge rate now. But I think those two, those two elements of having regulatory clarity from the regulators and uniform clarity from the industry in general is what is going to make this um, enterprise enabled and mainstream and, and bring in all the institutions that, we, that are starting to come in now. Um, where does Australia stand now, right? Because I know there's there's pretty active exchange down there and there's actually a really active uh, startup community. For example, um, for Binance, we invested in a company down there called uh, called Travel by Bit, right? Which is based out of um, Perth. I'm sorry, no, based out of Brisbane. I'm sorry, Brisbane. Brisbane. Uh, my geography's <laughs> it's east is west, north is south. That's 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 Australia. So my geography is kind of messed up there, but they're and they have very good support from the Queensland government. Where I think the sell, if you spend like micropayments in in, uh, in Bitcoin or other crypto like BNB, then there's no sales tax. So as a way, yes. they they're using this to, to attract to, to to using this to basically build up the tourism industry there. So we were very active. So the Australian Digital Chamber of Commerce, I have to give them a plug because I mean I think as far as associations that were, were the, in the inception of this industry, we were one of the better ones. The Digital Chamber of Commerce in the US, run by Perry Ann. Um, there's the Canadian Blockchain Association, run by Cole Kemper. A lot of us actually got together in the early days and and started to think about things. So Australia, yes. Yeah, so when we went to um, after we created digital assets, and we were talking to the the, the Minister of Finance, who's now the Australian Prime. Minister, by the way. So Scott Morrison, the Australian Prime Minister, is very versed on blockchain. He's been talking to us in the community since 2014, so he understands this. And that's an interesting factor too, that all the jurisdictions I work in are run by young leaders. They all get technology. They all understand the benefits of having, um, having, having really good regulation that's not going to stifle innovation, but it's going to keep up bad actors. So that's the point. So in Australia, yeah, we had the double GST removed because it was we, we came up with the definition of a digital asset. So mm -hmm. at 
commodity, we had the, the double GST taken off. That was the, first, the second thing we did. And then last year, we had all the exchanges um, put under Austrac, which is the anti-money laundering terrorism body of Australia, to report any transaction over $10,000. Now, all the exchanges were incredibly compliant to do that. They were very happy to do that. And that saw a very healthy um, spurt in activity on the exchanges in Australia. No, so I think that, that guy, that's given a lot of confidence to, um, to the regulator and, it, and the regulator has some interesting guidelines now around you know, sort of ICOs and, and what, what is suitable for investors. But um, Australia is a really good model to go off because it, it's mature enough and small enough and we are very innovative. Australia it, you know, it is a very young country and, and it's mature and, and, and millennials do dictate what happens in Australia, probably like the rest of the world. Um, but they do, they, yeah, we certainly are, are the first to uptake technology much quicker than a lot of the larger countries. What, what is, what's the stance that Australia, you mentioned ICOs on security tokens and such? Um, they've just come out with the new guidelines. Like it's, it's on the fence a bit. It just, I mean, it's, um, ASIC have been um, not as forward coming as some of the other jurisdictions that I work in without actually coming out and saying, uh, this is what you are. Um, they came out with some great guidelines, I think, last week. But, see, so in Mauritius, where I, where I am, we came out, we, we had a clear guideline on a security token um, a month ago um, on ICO tokens. We, we, there was a hybrid. Yeah, can, can, you talk, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I do think it is, it is something that is kind of stuck in the mud in the U.S., it feels like. Like, in the U.S., there's not any clarity nor is there any uh certainty uh and that's you have that and the problem with the us is as well like europe you have so many different regulators you know um so i like to go into countries where you only have one because it makes life much easier so mm -hmm. so in mauritius and australia it's when, when, and in bermuda where we wrote the regulation we looked at what an ico was now that's an interesting phenomenon because every country was coming to me last year going, oh Loretta, you gotta write our ico um legislation the ICO market has um, obviously died down a bit because regulation started to come in. I don't think that's a bad thing. So I looked at being an equity trader and you know, looking at an ICO, it could be a utility. You could just have you know, issue a token that could be used to participate in a network, goods and services. Um, if you're trying to be an investment, you go and issue a token or a coin to just make money. Well, hello, you're a security. Um, <laughs> If you look like a duck and you quack like a duck, well, guys, you're a duck. Um, so I think, but I think there will be situations where you could start yourself as a security. You might just want to go out and raise a billion dollars, and guess what? You might have this this token, maybe like the Dogecoin dudes, that goes and create, creates this amazing infrastructure in five years. Or you might try and you know, start out as a utility token, not work, and then just want to go and raise money and be a security. So I think we need to be flexible enough that we don't basket everything in one bucket, except if you are if a security, uh, if you are doing an STO, there you are. You're an STO and that's an easy one for us as regulators because you come under securities law, hello. And that, I think that's the STO market is where I'm seeing the new traction. And I think this will be the trillion dollar market. You've got the ICO market, with, I think security tokens, seems to be the next wave that, that people are asking me about. And then I think stable coins are going to become really interesting. If, you, and if you're looking at now the way that central banks are starting to look at what, what, 
blockchain can do for them. I, I think things like stable coins and being able to um, asset back um, coins or um, yeah, and, and even putting them into people's GDPs and, and central banks being able to use hard and, and soft assets to create baskets of, you know, of, of new ways to make money are going to be really interesting. So I think stable coins, um, security tokens, are going to be the flavour of the next year. And you're going to see some really hard and solid um, enterprise-grade um, businesses being built, being built. But I think we, the most exciting thing about the security token space is now, and maybe it's because I'm just a boring geek who likes to be a derivatives trader, but I think the derivatives that we can create on some of these tokens now and the security tokens markets and these secondary um, markets and future markets is really exciting. I think that makes a lot of sense. And then I think what you mentioned in terms of this this federation of countries is, you know, basically you have interoperability in terms of the regulations. Yes. Because businesses and cryptocurrency is a global phenomenon. It's not a country-specific phenomenon, right? For example, because I think ICOs are just one use case of the Ethereum blockchain from three or four years ago, right? That has allowed fundraising on the blockchain. And I don't think that's going to stop. It's just that certain activity may be limited in certain jur jurisdictions, but that doesn't mean, that all that means is that I think it may pick up in other jurisdictions. And given the global nature of crypto assets or digital assets, and then I think things will move, right? Because of the frictionless nature that companies can, can raise capital through the blockchain. Remember Correct. I was an asset trader, so my bugbear as a trader was never understanding where my PNL would be at the end of the day, because I'd be trading something you know, in the US um, or you know, another an equity in, in Australia or a bond in, in Europe or you know, gold in, in, in Asia. And the settlements were also different because you got T plus one and some T plus three. If you trade water, by the way, it's T, T plus 27. <laughs> um, so, and blockchain takes it out. So you have a total frictionless system now of execute, trade, execution, and settlement bank. That really revolutionises markets as we see them today. That's what a lot of clearinghouses can't get their heads around and, and, and traditional exchanges because they have made money out of in the system, especially in the post-trade processes, which blockchain removes. Mm -hmm. um, I, so that's why I think the velocity of trading, um, the decentralised nature of it, the, the movement across jurisdictions or, you know, automatically and the ability to trade derivatives, futures um, at any time across any jurisdiction that's got the same regulation and exchanges can, can move these things is going to be so powerful. How do you see Binance operate in this then, right? Because we are kind of a borderless organisation and our exchanges kind of serve people from around the world. And we're starting to pick up licenses in different jurisdictions. Yes, I mean you're you're you sit in the odd basket that your your retail, but I think um, you are institutional as well. So I I think when you're looking at ex uh, security um, exchanges, I think there's a big play for you across jurisdictions that want a credible. Um, ability to have a securities exchange that just does security trading, but also the ability for a crypto exchange to do security tokens because security exchange in, in the forms that they are now does not fit into their business models. You know, it's like putting round pegs in square holes. They need um, other entities that I think that you, be, you could actually then start to trade across. So I think there's a huge opportunity for you to work with the traditional exchanges and offer them um, the benefits uh, and you know what the, the functions of what you do as a decentralized mm -hmm. um, 
Stock Exchange and, and, for, and for what they do. Because a lot of these guys have licenses in these jurisdictions, but they will never be able to trade security tokens because they don't have the, the software. They don't have the, the ability or understanding mm -hmm. of the market that we do. Because crypto is very different. Um, and that's one thing that I've found over the last few years, like trying to explain oh, Bitcoin or, yeah, or Litecoin is... Oh my gosh! They and the, the confusion about you know what tokens are and what coins are or how coins are forked. That it's a big learning curve for a lot of people because they don't know the difference and especially regulators. I mean, you know, they don't know what a coin is compared to a token. You know, is it when you're looking at a utility token? When you're, I was trying to explain to people that you don't get any equity in it, they're like very confusing. So there's a lot of the terms, but I think a lot of um, the regulators are actually starting to understand now. Um, but I think there's huge opportunities for you, even in, in um, countries where securities exchanges have no liquidity. And there's mm -hmm. many of them around the world. Because the biggest, biggest problem of, of traditional markets these days is that very few companies go to IPO. So very, very, very few um, security exchanges have liquidity. And, and I've seen that, that phenomena happen over the last 10 years. Volumes on, on traditional equities exchanges has gone down. So they, they need to look at new ways to, to, you know, to, to get companies to IPO. It doesn't mean that people like you are IPO, but the, the IPO costs are very high. And you look at the cost ratios between what you do as an exchange and what a securities exchange does. Very, very different. And can you talk a little bit about, you mentioned the uh, the security token guidance that you helped to put out in Mauritius. Can you talk a little bit about that and what's so unique about it? Because you and I chatted about the settlement process that, that currently exists on for security tokens or, or the proposed ones that we've seen, right? So, yeah, so that's on the financial services um, website. Anyone can go and have a look at it. It was a guidance where you just said, you know, if, if you are doing a security token, then you fall under the Securities Act and you must follow the rules of the Security Act. Um, it, it was easy. I mean, I don't think I overcomplicated it in any manner. And I think the problem is a lot of the bigger jurisdictions have been trying to really complicate it. We wrote a yeah, very easy one-page guidance note. Please go and have a look at it anybody that does because I think it's just you're a security and so you want to do an investment you want people to have equity well then you're a security and you're going to fall under us as the regulator um so I don't think it's anything particularly complicated I think it's actually easy and I I'm pretty simple I've been a complicated person so I, I get, get so so one of the things that one of the things that that we've been proposing or that I'm a big proponent of is basically it, it, like I think what, what you mentioned about how to define things is critical because you choose your words carefully. Because once that word gets locked in, then it then it has different connotations to different people from different backgrounds. Yep. The same word. So I think definition is really really important. And I'm actually I was really happy to hear that you helped to set the definitions in Australia because English is the the dominant language in our space right now. And and then the second thing, at least from us, we hope to see is actually to classify the digital assets as a new asset class. Well, we did in Mauritius. Yeah. We came out. It was our first yeah. thing that I did. We sat down. And we, Mauritius has been awesome. So I got called into Mauritius a year ago. Um, so we, we put together a regulatory um, regulatory framework team, which comprised of myself, Lord Megnum Desai, who's a member of the House of Lords, a macroeconomist, and he was the chair of the London School of Economics, Lord um, Anthony Sudon. Um, the central bank governor of the Bank of Mauritius, the deputy governor, the chairman of the Financial Services Commission, the CEO of the, the Financial Services Commission, Joseph Weinberg, again, who was the technologist, the attorney general, the solicitor general, the head of the financial intelligence unit, the head of the anti-corruption and 
I can't remember what else ICAC stands for. We formed a committee and we were given that the mandate by the Prime Minister to look at the regulations and the legislations and see what Bitcoin and these digital assets were and where they fitted into the existing legislation and where they didn't. So we actually were given that six months to do it. I was quite horrified. It looked like a very daunting task. We did it within three weeks. So we came up with a complete um, regulatory framework for digital assets. And we said, okay, because the central banks have been worried when you call Bitcoin, Bitcoin, that it was going to be money supply. So the first thing we said was um, digital asset class, but they're, um, but they're not legal tender. We didn't say that they were illegal, but that took out the mandate of needing um, needing the central bank to have an input over anything that's money supply. So that was very interesting, and um, we were, I think, the first jurisdiction to do that. That's also on the website. We have had a number of jurisdictions copy that. We've set up a collaborative um, centre with the OECD and a regulatory um, capacity building centre to help African countries now build similar regulatory frameworks. And we also came came up with a sandbox because I think not for people like you, because you're too big, but there's a lot of companies in the space um, that sandboxes are very good for. So let them come in, come in under the regulator. We let you have up to 50 customers. You test out your product. You know, you, we see if it's, you know, it's, it's legal or not, it's good, bad or indifferent. All the people that sat on that committee sit on the, the sandbox committee as well. And we go sit down once a month and we go through each company and I think we have 27 at the moment. And a few of them are going to migrate to be properly licensed businesses. And we also then decide, are you going to be regulated by the Financial Services Commission or by the central bank? Mm -hmm. And that's a really interesting exercise in itself. So you are seeing, you know, more convergence in regulation then, uh, at least for some of the smaller, more adaptive countries. Um, I, if I could tell you how many calls I got in the day from countries saying, can you just come and do that? You, you got. Um, yes. <laughs> but, it, and, but it's not copy and paste. I mean, the thing is for me, these countries are all still very, yes, countries are countries and they have very interesting, uh, not, not every country has the same laws. They may have similar laws, but there's specifics to particular countries that you have to be aware of. Mm -hmm. um, but there is definitely a convergence of regulation. I think it's important when bodies like the OECD, whose, you know, whose mission statement is better policies for better lives, can come in and help the likes of me and jurisdictions form policies that are actually uniform with all their members as well. We're seeing mm -hmm. that. We're seeing the IMF trying to do this as well. The Financial Stability Board um, has come up with some recommendations. They have been awesome. I'm going to have to give the financial stability board a plug. Mm -hmm. um, who's the, the, as I said, the Institute of Economic Community of um, um, Monetary and Financial Institutions. The central banks that I've been speaking to have, have in the last six months, embraced technology and innovation like I've never seen before. So you're seeing convergence, not, not only regulators and regulators, you're seeing central banks, um, you're seeing governments, and you're seeing industry all come together to help, I think, do the one thing that the internet didn't do very well, to be very collaborative and to help write these new regulations that help help us be forward-thinking mm -hmm. into a different 21st century not and retrofit regulations that just don't work. 
So one of the things that's been making like basically very um, very big headlines around the world, especially in, for uh, for exchange in the exchanges, is actually the the recent guidelines from uh, from FATF um, and and implementing sort of like banking style travel rule. Do you have any color into that at all? So, so I'm, um, I've spent a lot of time with the FATF as well. Um, I think the, the big issues have been around certain, um, and actually that's why I'm here speaking at the um, at the the West African community of African states on money laundering and terrorism financing. Because the one the one thing that FATF does, um, it's a body of 35 countries um, that that. Mandate is to stop money laundering and terrorism financing. Um, so the one, the, the one thing is though that when they set guidelines, um, they do have a, a, a an effect to come down um, and affect me as a securities regulator. So they so the guidelines of that are very important because they have a direct correlation to investor and um, consumer protection. The issues around the FATF rulings of the last couple of weeks, the policy guidelines that have come out, they have tried to say that. Um, that we should classify all the currency movements as wire transfers. Now, that doesn't work because cryptocurrencies are not wire transfers. And it comes back then they're talking about when you have to take the beneficial um, and receiver, the information of both sides. Now, mm-hmm. that's not going to work. Um, so the travel rule is a really sticky one as well um, because that is basically putting banking regulations into the crypto space and it's it you know it is not going to work in some protocols in fact it's not going to work for the industry i hope <laughs> that there there is some some sensible thinking around these policy decisions which need to be made, made in the next three weeks because what will happen if the, if the travel rule is implemented and the wire transfer is implemented one of the other rules is they wanted to <coughs> me. they wanted all companies to report anything over a thousand dollars or a thousand pounds. Now that's, that to me is ridiculous. If institutions that are startups and people we exchanges have to go report thousand dollar transactions as money laundering or terrorist financing transactions, well, that, that makes no sense for the industry. Um, I think what we did in Australia, well, we put $10,000 as the limit for the exchange worked. And, and some people said at the time that was very good, but I mean, I, I think looking in hindsight, that was a much, much better number. Um, so I hope, the, the policy um, guidelines that come out don't stifle innovation because what will happen, this industry will just go back into the shadows and they, they won't follow the regulation anyway. So, I, yeah, I, I really hope that the, the FATF policy guidelines um, after the plenary that they had last week with the interpretation notes that they came out of, they spoke to industry, they understand that you can't retrofit regulations that work in one industry into this new industry because they just don't. Okay. That, that's, that's a really good piece. It seems like you basically fly around the world, talk to very important people. And one of the things that you actually got me involved in and had a chance to visit the Vatican because you're involved in this uh, Humanity 2.0 project, um, which is a, uh, a global initiative to basically make the world a better place. Can you talk a little bit about that? So that's one of my biggest passions outside of, of, of just what people do think I fly around the, the world and um, do regulations. I, for a very long time, have, have looked... I lived in India for 10 years. Um, the one thing that got me into blockchain, and this is a story that, that, that resonates with everybody. Um, when I was running RBS in India, I had 10 staff. Um, the third staff member of mine who used to look after my daughter all the time, and, and my little girl 
who was about four at the time, used to go and sleep in the slums. You know, we lived in India and people used to say, find that very strange. And I'd say, well, they look after her all day. You know, nothing's very different. Just because people are poor does not make them bad. So one of my, my workers in my house had a little girl, Amaya, who was 13. And as what happens in India, she had to go to work on her 13th birthday because um, they didn't have money for her to continue her education. And the first day that she was there, she got raped and murdered by 19 guys. They burnt her body before her mother had got home from work for me. So I had to bury this little girl and she used to look after my daughter. And this was 2010. So she didn't die with dignity and she wasn't born with it. So it got me thinking back then, there's got to be a way. How can we live in a world in 2010 when these things still happen? So when I first read the blockchain revolution as well, as opposed to just building a clearing settlement system, I thought, oh, my God, digital ID, starting to work out how we can actually help people. The social impact of this technology really got to me as well. So I work with something called Humanity 2.0. Um, I sit on the advisory board to the Pope. And what we are trying to do is, is manage the human trafficking we are seeing in refugee camps. So regardless of what you think of the Catholic Church, um, I'm agnostic to my beliefs these days, um, the Catholic Church is one of the largest institutions in the world and one of the largest institutions that runs things like refugee camps. And don't forget that goes across creeds and castes. There's many mm -hmm. of that in yep. the Middle East. The biggest problem that we're seeing is that we're losing somewhere between, and they don't know the numbers, between 6 and 9% of all, all kids that go into refugee camps, they can't find. So I'm trying to put together the religious leaders of the world, the young leaders of the world, some of the institutions like the IMF and the World Bank that are all working in silos, and all of you guys, the technologists, because I think if we can start to ID kids as they come into a refugee camp, because everyone's got access to a phone. Um, we can use some, you know, some biometrics. We could actually lower this ratio in the next year. So that's a really, that's a really heartfelt project of mine. And it's something that I will do. I'm relatively determined. And I think, you know, if, if the crypto community was built by Satoshi to do what it was meant to do, I think this is a really, really, really good, um, a really good initiative that we can all work together to, to, to fight because kids shouldn't be trafficked. I agree hundred percent. And I told you this, I was going to put, I'm going to put you in touch with Helen, just a preview. We're actually working on something that might achieve some of the things that you, that you talked about. I'm going to put you in touch with Helen. Originally the term, uh, we wanted to call it a refugee coin, but, but I think they ended up changing the name to something else, but, um, but something to that effect to be able to track uh, not just to be able to track, but to incentivize them to you to be tracked because uh, yeah. because you can deposit uh, crypto into the accounts uh, of their phones. Yeah, because everything is a social and economic incentive, right? Ex you know, exactly. A reason to do things. And, and, and um, yeah, I think that and this is, this is what the Bitcoin network was built to be. So, so yeah, mm -hmm. everything has a social and economic incentive to do. You opt in or you opt out. But if you opt into it, you play by the rules. Um, yeah. I think, yeah, I think that's one thing that social impact of now and, you know, just transfer of funds um, on the blockchain into things like refugee camps and into, you know, infrastructure projects in really poor places is one of the best use cases, I think, that we as the blockchain community can, can all bind together, you know, when we're not thinking about the price of Bitcoin or Ethereum, to help actually make some real change in the world. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Really, I really, really appreciated this conversation. Thank you for doing the good yeah. work. And we'll stay in touch.
Okay? Yeah, you guys are great. So um, th thanks. Have a good day. Hey, everybody. This is uh, We. I'm here at the Asian Leadership Conference in Seoul, Korea. Mm -hmm. And I'm uh, very happy to have uh, Jason Xu mm -hmm. with us. Jason is the, uh, in, in the blockchain circle, is known as the crypto congressman from Taiwan. Uh, he's uh, attended many conferences. In my professional capacity, um, we met Jason multiple times and exploring basically how Binance can expand and help the crypto industry and the blockchain industry in Taiwan as a whole. Mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. so Jason, please you know, tell us a little bit about your background and then we'll jump into you know, other stuff. Sure. Well, thanks for having me. So I'm a technologist turned legislator. So I was a tech entrepreneur before I become a legislator, a member of parliament. So when I become a politician, my friends joke that I joined the dark side. I, uh, I, I figure it's important for someone like me who can speak the language on both sides, language of the technology, language of public policy, mm -hmm. to bridge the gap between the tech and uh, policy and legislation. What did you do in tech? Previously? I was in, in San Francisco back in 2006. I was working on a mobile you, So uh, you mobile were, app. were you born in Taiwan? Or? I was born in Taiwan. And I was born and raised in Taiwan. And you went to US for, for, for masters? or for No, I was first there I to start a company with a friend oh, in wow. San Francisco. Okay. And um, so we did the uh, app store before mm -hmm. there was an app store. Okay. Yeah, so we got lucky when uh, Apple rolled out the first generation of iPhone when they started building the App Store. Uh, we got we got acquired, so oh, wow. it was okay. a pretty pretty good uh, turned out. And so I moved back to Taiwan. And but you're I, an engineering by training, or, or? Um, no, I'm a more a business development person. Okay. Yeah, so a sort of uh, business development. And then um, uh, moved back to Taiwan and I start organizing uh, conferences. Mm -hmm. So I ran uh, TEDx Taipei. When was this? Uh, 2009 to 2016. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So towards the end of 2015, I was nominated as a legislator at large to focus on technology portfolio. Mm -hmm. So since I become a member of the legislature, I have been focusing on basically removing legal barrier for technology innovation. Did you participate in an election? No, so in Taiwan, there are two types of, of uh, legislators. Uh -huh. One is your district legislator, uh -huh. which is uh, you, you you have to campaign. Mm -hmm. And the other is what we call a, a party list. Mm -hmm. So I'm on the party list um, based on the number of votes that mm -hmm. the, the, the party determine the number of seats, mm -hmm. the what we call a large um, uh, legislators can mm -hmm. can have. How long is this a term of? Start? So the term is uh, four years. Mm -hmm. My term is up uh, 2020. Okay. So are you going to stick with it? So uh, as a, a large legislator, we can get uh, reappointed okay. for two terms. Okay. So yeah, I'm hopeful. Okay. Yeah, because there's a, a lot of things I I want to do and I still haven't accomplished. Okay. So yeah. so let's go back a little bit. So yeah. When after you sold your start successfully sold your startup yeah. and then you moved back to Taiwan. Yeah. And then you became very active in organizing conferences. Yeah. And then what 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 does that entail? What did you do there? I mean, I was just organizing a TED conference. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, eighteen minute talk. Mm -hmm. In, I introduced uh, TEDx mm -hmm. to Taiwan. Oh wow. And so basically, I become the uh, the organizer for Taiwan, and I become the the Asia ambas ambassador, and really kind of just 
helping grow the ecosystem. So you must have met a lot of interesting people. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, everyone deserves the 80 minute of fame these <laughs> uh-huh, days, right? Uh-huh. So uh, yeah, so that's kind of how I got to know a lot of uh, different background uh-huh. people. Yeah, yeah, because I think I think in my experience, you're you're very well traveled. I think mm-hmm. not just in Asia, but I think globally as well. Right? Yeah, towards the end of my uh, career with TEDx, I uh, I got invited to uh, work with the government. So I was the uh, advisor to the premier mm-hmm. and so i focus on the uh, entrepreneurship program uh, for Ma, the country Ma, Ma Zhang Yihua. Zhang Yihua. Zhang Yihua is under my angel okay. administration yeah. uh-huh. so tell me about what's it like to transition then from a technology background to a politician do you see yourself more as a politician or as more as a policymaker that, that's a good question uh i think i i've always approached politics with a uh, entrepreneur spirit. Mm-hmm. So I call myself a, a political entrepreneur mm-hmm. or a policy entrepreneur. Uh-huh. So I think, especially when it comes to uh, legislation, you always have to fight for your own uh, legislation. So there are a lot of different uh, issues and topics, but you know you always have to pitch your ideas mm-hmm. and uh, to convince the executive branch and convince your fellow legislators. Uh-huh. So it's a, a lot like, you know, going to pitch to the to the venture capitalists. Uh-huh. Yeah. Except I don't need their money. Yeah. <laughs> well, you need their vote then. I right? need their also, votes. Yeah, which cause, is cuz yeah. cuz I think in in my mind like I've been to Taiwan a bunch of times mm. and it's it's a very well educated base right people are very tech savvy in general right yeah there's a lot of you know global technology companies mm-hmm. i think that are based out of taiwan and yeah have you know have expanded their businesses globally right yeah. in terms of in terms of more i think traditionally in the manufacturing space sure right whereas like with the mobile revolution i think mm-hmm. i feel like they've still are stuck on the manufacturing kind of mindset right yeah whereas with the arrival of internet and even now with blockchain and cryptocurrency it's much more knowledge based more software based type of type of uh, type of ecosystem do you see like uh was it hard to shift that mindset in taiwan yeah it's it's always very difficult for any nation or any industry to transition from the legacy success mm-hmm. to a to a more forward looking or a riskier path and certainly taiwan has been you know, sitting on the on the, on the success of the hardware business and the mm-hmm. global electronics supply chain. Mm-hmm. But with the rise of China, a lot of factories move there. And also a lot of the key components are now, you know, moving away from Taiwan. Mm-hmm. So that's why we need to figure out where our next uh, economic pillar will be. Mm-hmm. Truth be told, 30 years ago, our Moonshot project was the uh, semiconductor. Mm-hmm. So we launched TSMC yep. and then which kind of spinheaded a lot of uh, new uh, industries. Mm-hmm. But now we are asking ourselves, where, where is our next moonshot? Mm-hmm. Uh, which I like to believe mm-hmm. the uh, blockchain and crypto mm-hmm. would be a, a potential uh, moonshot for okay. Taiwan. Okay, that's a good transition point then. Yes. How did you get into crypto? How did you get into blockchain? Yeah, interestingly, you know, I, I was never a finance person to begin with. Mm-hmm. So to trade stocks or, you know, uh, trade crypto. It's, it's very, very unusual for me. But what happened was on, sept- on September 4th, 2017, uh, when China banned ICO. Uh-huh. And that's the day that I got a lot of calls uh, from the uh, press. And they were asking, so, you know, what's Taiwan's attitude towards this? Uh-huh. And I said, we should embrace it. And ever since then, I sort of got myself onto this you know, roller coaster journey of uh, becoming crypto congressman, <laughs> promoting Taiwan, uh-huh. 
and setting up the legislation and the regulatory framework mm -hmm. for this. And what are the key things that you're working on right now? Right? Yeah. Because I think I've seen a lot of things in the news about uh, security token or yeah. STO regulations. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, in my experience, I think um, one of the challenges at least finance has in Taiwan is basically working with uh, banks there to basically to operate. You know, sure, as, sure. Yeah, aspects of their business. Yeah. Because right? I think in, in my mind, I think there's like two or three things to really drive innovation. One is basically how do you get um, how do you get capital in the hands of entrepreneurs? Right? Sure. And I think that's something that uh, ICOs are trying to solve for. Right. And the second thing is, how do you provide uh, easy, accessible, easy and accessible fiat uh, on-ramps into crypto for, sure. for, for investors? Right? Yeah, yeah. And then the third thing is, is uh, how do you attract, uh, you know, existing global companies in the space like, yeah. to come to, to set up shop? Yeah. Right? I think those are the key things that, from your perspective. And what are you thinking? Yeah, I think definitely now is the right time for for regulators to come in to this space. Mm -hmm. And I think after we experienced the uh, whole ICO bubble, you yeah. know, and now I think we are looking at, you know, how to properly develop a uh, environment for this industry. And I think regulators must embrace the idea of creating a evolving mechanism so that the law can also evolve as the technology evolves. Mm -hmm. So right now it's still very much about the uh, regulators' uh, point of view on particularly understanding how this industry works. If, if you look at this, I think I, I feel it, it's a new way of developing an alternative finance mm -hmm. and then to completely restructure the existing gridlock of mm -hmm. the country's uh, economy. Mm -hmm. and I think for Taiwan, uh, a lot of startups have trouble raising capital, mm -hmm. especially accessing the venture capitalists and etc. Um, and blockchain and crypto, I think, provides the best way for them to raise funds and uh, develop a um, global-facing businesses. Mm -hmm. um, so for regulators and legislators, I think we just have to be very open-minded and also have the constant uh, communication with the industry. And too early regulation is bad regulation, but too late regulation also stifle the industry. Yeah, so that's kind of... Uh, Do your what I, colleagues share your view? Um, obviously, I'm a rare animal um, in this in this regard, mm -hmm. uh, but I think I'm winning more and more support. Mm -hmm. Now, in Taiwan, we have a, a parliamentary coalition for blockchain, mm -hmm. which is great. Uh, now, uh, Taiwan is coming out with a STO regulatory framework in mm -hmm. June, mm -hmm. which I'm very excited. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, so definitely. Yeah. Thank you very much for your time. Yeah. I uh, really appreciate it. Hope to speak again. And for then, sure. Uh, see you in Taiwan. We should do part two. There's a lot I want to I wanna say. We'll go dig deeper into the specific laws next time. Okay, All right? great. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this interview as, as much as I did. And... If you like this show, please share this episode on Twitter, Facebook, Telegram, WeChat, or any other social media platforms. Please don't forget to subscribe to the Binance Podcast, and see you next time.